1: Okay, so we are here to talk about Tragedy Plus Time, a tragic comic memoir by Adam Caton-Holland, who, are you ready, is a national touring comic who has appeared on Conan at Midnight, The Meltdown with Jonah and Camille, Happy Endings, Deadbeat, Flophouse, Hidden America with Jonah Ray, and was named one of Esquire's 25 comics to watch and Variety's 10 comics to watch they are different numbers. Um, Adam co-created uh, rights and stars in True TV's Those Who Can't Get Along with his fellow members of the comedy troupe The Grawlix. His albums, Adam, Kate, and Holland performs his signature bits. I don't know if I... I don't know if i happy, and Backyards are available on iTunes, and his writing has appeared in The Village Voice, Spin, The A.V. Club, and The Atlantic. He has been described as genial with pretty decent teeth, and he currently lives in Denver. And joining him is Dave Holmes, Esquire's L.A. editor-at-large. Adam and I have also agreed that you can you also know him from uh, Homophilia, True Story, uh, host of the live show Friday at f- the Friday 40, and he's the author of Party of One. And again, they're here to talk about Tragedy Plus Time, which our own Kumail says, Adam has made me laugh many times. This is the first time he has made me cry. A gorgeous work about accepting the unthinkable with grace, humor, and love. Essential reading for anyone who has ever lost someone, anyone who has ever grieved someone, or anyone who has ever loved someone. Here they are.
2: Thank you very much for having us.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: My first uh, order of business is to uh, go away. Yeah. Um, Because you're going to read.
2: Yeah, Dave was so nice enough to do this favor to sort of moderate this. So I asked him if he could just come up on stage with me and then immediately get off stage. Just immediately leave. And just exit.
0: So you don't have a book. Are you doing it from memory?
2: Well, I have a piece of paper. Yeah, I've got the whole book memorized. (laughs) Great. Uh, I'm going to do two readings. This is actually one piece, I I turned in the book way. Uh, longer than it became back obviously Uh and this was a piece an excerpt that didn't make the book that I really like that I was going to read up front. Ladies and gentlemen Adam Caton. Thank you Dave. (laughs) Wow worth every penny. Um, Thank you guys for coming out I appreciate this. A lot of you know me a lot some of you knew my little sister Lydia uh, who is a very special person that this book is is a tribute to Um, and I've I've been doing a lot of press for this book and a lot of it is doom and gloom and mental illness and suicide and depression. But as I think you'll find if you've read the book, it's also a celebration of, of Lydia. So for me, the things that are fun to read are the things that bring her to life rather than the, you know, because I had, she, she died when she was 28, and I had 26 years of this really brilliant, quirky, funny, weird individual and then the last two years were you know this dark hell storm but even in that there was humor and her life Uh, so I kind of like to focus on the the 26 as opposed to the last two which is a place that's taken me some doing to get to Uh, so this is a story about waking Lydia up in the morning Um, that's not in the book but a current favorite of my own work wow look at this guy and so I'm used to the comedy clubs where you can't see the faces. And <laughs> this, is, this is horrifying. <clears throat> uh, I call it wake-up call. Come sunrise, we were sworn enemies because I was a morning person and my little sister Lydia was a demon, at least when she first woke up. My internal clock would go off five minutes before my mom was due to wake me up, a good little soldier ready to attack the day. Lydia slept like a gin drunk, Sheets pulled in every direction, her body set at painful angles, like she collapsed that way the night before and hadn't moved since. If you tried to rouse her, God help you. She would lash out, flailing violently with a force that belied her tiny arms. My mom gave it her best shot for many years, but after catching an errant backhand to the face one morning, she called it quits, not her job anymore. So it became mine. Lydia slept in my older sister Anna's bedroom uh, with Anna. We tried making Lydia sleep in her own bedroom, but it never took. And so Anna, ever gracious, allowed Lydia to bonk with her for her entire childhood. That's just how it was. Lydia needed the safety of the family, the comfort of the nest. Anna was her nocturnal rock. The two of them would fall asleep in Anna's king-sized bed watching Star Trek. Then Anna would head out at the crack of dawn with my father off to figure skating practice before school. That's when Lydia would really tuck in and hibernate. An hour or so later, it was my job to wake the bear. When I was first assigned the duty, I was a saint. I would quietly crack the door, tiptoe over to her softly and coo, Lydia, time to wake up. My bedside manner was impeccable. A loving sibling welcoming his sister into the light of the new day. No, she would shriek shrilly, a somnambulant Emily Rose. She'd begin wildly kicking beneath the sheets, gnashing her teeth. No, 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 no. I took it in stride. I had heard tales of the nasty girl who lived down the hall, and I was not going to be deterred. Lydia and I were going to be locked in this struggle for the foreseeable future. There was nobody lower down on the totem pole for me to punt to. I figured I had to make it work. So I continued to try to kill the beast with kindness for over a month to gain a little ground each day as though taming a wild animal. But some animals are beyond taming. Like a beautiful quetzal that dies the instant you cage it. Or a feral possum that just needs to be beaten in the head with a fucking shovel. (laughs) There was just no getting through to Lydia while she slept. Then I had a breakthrough. I realized that waking Lydia up was only a thankless task if I expected a thank you. If I recalibrated my expectations, asked for nothing in return, and instead trying to find a joy in her rage, mornings would be a lot more fun. So I tweaked my delivery. I would announce myself with a kick to the bathroom door, to the bedroom door, an initial cannon blast across the bow of her slumbering ship. Boom! It was loud and violent. She'd shoot up in the bed, confused, alarmed, irate. Upon seeing me there in the doorway, she'd begin emitting a high-pitched wail as her head rotated a complete 360 degrees and thousands of tiny spiders poured from her eyes and mouth. Lydia, get up, I would command in my most authoritative voice. She would slam her head back onto the pillow and pull the sheets completely over her head, emitting a piercing shriek that only dogs could hear. Lydia, I'm going to take a bath. If you're not awake by the time I'm out of the bath, I will fuck you up. <laughs> Side note, I grew up in a house with no showers. When they built my child at home way back when, baths were the lay of the land. So every morning before school, I got up and I took a bath. As fast as I could. While my classmates were luxuriating and scalding hot showers, I was speed shampooing beneath a spigot prostrate in inches of tepid water like some sickly medieval prince so that I wouldn't be late for school. So you see, I'm a bath man. And you can see it in the way I carry myself. Not always, mind you, but at certain moments it really comes through. This innate refinement and sophistication. When I'm wearing a pea coat, for example, with a scarf in it's fall in New York. Or even when I'm just staring wistfully towards the horizon. You'll catch sight of me, and you'll register a certain nobility, and you'll think to yourself, my God, now there is a man who took baths his whole life. And you'll be right. During my peak years, I could get the job done in three minutes flat. So mere moments later, after my initial warning, I would spill out of Anna's bathroom, only to find Lydia snoring like a businessman in first class. Lydia, I'm going to get dressed, and then I'm coming back here. If you're not up by then, so help me, God. I cannot be held responsible for what happens. I would run to my room quickly get dressed and return all business. Because at this point, she had blown her chances. Diplomacy had been exhausted. It had become clear that the only thing the beast inside my sister would understand was brute force, which I had in spades. (laughs) Elbow dropped directly onto Lydia's stomach, Macho Man Randy Savage style. She would burst from her slumber, a dervish of elbows and fingernails. She screamed obscenities backwards in Aramaic, her hellhound breath melting the skin from my face but I could overpower her. I'd pin her down and I'd begin summoning spit with practice refinement. First the slow rumble deep in my esophagus, then the hack as I moved the phlegm from the back of my throat up to the tip of my tongue, readying a dose of morning venom. Once I felt my loogie had achieved optimal viscosity, I'd slowly release it through my pursed lips where it dangled, slug-like, in the space between my mouth and my little sister's nose. The creature beneath me would thrash its head back and forth, but such measures were futile. There was only one way out of this, and the beast inside knew this. It must relinquish the girl it inhabited. There had been too many times when that spit had landed, thick and wet on the demon's nose, eyes, mouth. So finally, begrudgingly, all other options exhausted, the monster would depart from my little sister Lydia, and she would return, blinking rapidly in sudden comprehension. You could see the realizations come over her. The day is beginning. My brother is on top of me. I'm about to swallow two and a half ounces of his mucus. It is time. This day must begin. Okay, okay, I'll wake up, she'd relent. And I'd retract the loogie and hyper hyperspeed rewind, hop off of her and smile. Good morning, Lydia. I love you. Kill her with kindness. Good morning, she would hiss. Then she'd trot off to the bathroom to brush her teeth, Grumbling. But if you watched her closely in those moments, and she didn't know that you could see her, the slightest smile would crack her little face. There was a cognizance in that grin, the recognition of the hard-fought efforts of a worthy foe. Game recognizes game, I believe they call it. And as Hyde passed over the baton to her daytime Jekyll, I would head back to my room triumphant. Whatever nocturnal beast tormented her had been vanquished. My little sister Lydia had returned. It was beautiful and disgusting. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Thanks, well Dave. So, Adam, how do you feel?
2: You're I both
0: feel fresh out in the world.
2: Yeah, I feel Talk really. I feel good about it. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and I've done a, a, a shit ton of media. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little, a little tired of that. But uh, sure. things like this are really cool. Yeah. I enjoy this part of it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You're with friends. Yeah, and the people that knew Lydia here, and, right. and that's just nice. I, I was kind of telling you on the street, I had a. Book release in Denver, where I'm from, uh, last week, and and so many of you know parents that I grew up with, and that Lydia grew up with, and Lydia's friends came out. So I was expecting it to be this sad event, and it was this very uh, triumphant celebration of her, and people were sharing memories, and it was just like, oh, I was like, oh, this was needed, yeah, yeah. So that felt really good.
0: Yeah. Um, How does it's? It's a strange thing when you come out. With, anything, with any kind of a book, with any kind of a product, with a show, yeah. um, when you do something that is as intensely personal as this is, and as close to your heart as this is, and you sit with it for a while, and you have a lot of long nights writing, and then all at once it's a thing on a yeah. shelf with a price tag on it, yeah. how, do, how does that feel? How does that feel to you? Uh,
2: well, you know, there is the like, wow, here's my most intimate pain for public consumption, right. which scares me. But I was emailing with you a couple months ago, and you were like, "I still don't get over going through a Barnes and Noble and seeing my book on a shelf because I'm a writer and I always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And this is my first book, so I'm I, I can compartmentalize enough to enjoy. Be like, this is my book, right? And it's getting good reviews, and it's yeah. on a shelf. Like yeah. I, yeah, I love this bookstore. I I chose this for a reason, and like it's so cool to just walk by and see your book in the window is. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar to, like, yeah, that first time you and your friends are on TV, you're like, can you believe? Like, we, you almost feel like, I got away with it. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, that scene in That Thing You Do, where they hear their song on the radio for the first time. Right. But you're the entire band. <laughs> right?
2: I assume you're talking about my TV show, which is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I only said that because Ben Roy's here. <laughs> um,
0: so how, I mean, do you feel... um Having put something that is so personal out into the world, do you feel? Do you do you, like? Do you feel naked?
2: Yeah, I. So this, you know, the the first thing I ever wrote was like an essay. When when Lydia died, I was didn't feel like doing comedy ever again, and I didn't think I was going to be funny, and I just didn't think I certainly didn't want to talk about it there. But then, you know, the insufferable creative type that we are, I was like, I gotta I gotta process this through my art, and so I just like wrote a piece about everything I went through, and I put it online. Right. And uh, it really was cathartic for me, and, and it got what I needed out at that time. And immediately, the reaction was enormous, and people started sharing emails and, and stories of, of similar things they'd gone through. So I, I, so I was immediately hit with, like, the pervasiveness of mental illness. Mm-hmm. But I was also, at the time, not ready to have any distance to discuss... Uh, and so I think I, I, that sort of girded me as like when putting this book out, I was like, I know a lot of people are going to reach out and I'm going to have to like politely say, you know, good on you, keep fighting the good fight, but I can't really go into the muck of this with you because mm-hmm. initially I was doing that type of thing. So I'm, I'm more prepared for that now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: In writing, you know, we, you just read something that didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Did you, did you lose a lot of things that you no babe my
2: editor you know it's the power of editors i I was like 150 pages too long and so they cut all that out and i don't think it was as as smooth a narrative um but anything that i really cherished i was able to get back in this one i don't know i kind of wanted this one in but they were you know it didn't it just achieves a fun memory of me and lydia as children and uh and i had that in spades and so i was like well I'll, i'll find a a place for this right, right yeah,
0: and there really is a balance in the book, like there is there is a lot about the tragedy that happened in, in your family, but there's also a lot about you and your passion for comedy yeah and and you know, the the way that you funneled yourself through that world, you know definitely um did you ever feel like was it a difficult balance as you were working on it? did you ever feel like this is too much me or this is not enough me, or
2: definitely, because this is a, you know this is a memoir, but it's also about Lydia as much about me. And that's a huge responsibility because she's gone. Mm-hmm. No one else is writing this. So if I did this clumsily or misrepresented her, that would be just the worst thing ever. So I definitely felt, um, yeah, it was a two-pronged memoir. It was more going on here than just me writing about me. I'd feel, I, I would love to just write about me. <laughs> be, I'd love to do that. That'd be fantastic. I, I think I could do it decently. Yeah. But the Her, the the pressure of her, I felt the entire time. And uh, you know, I gave it to my parents and my sister before I turned it into the uh, editor. And I was just like, anything you want out of here, you know, it's gone. I don't, this is no like vendetta against my parents. We're a very loving, supportive family. So if anything, the point is like mental illness can rear its head even in the seemingly most idyllic of, of family situations. Um, but I gave it to my mom to be like, you know, they tweaked a few details here and there. And my mom said after it that she was like, I felt like I spent the afternoon with Lydia. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so I've like done it decent justice. If my mom feels like, yeah, she's, there's nothing in here that she was like, that doesn't sound like her. She's like, yeah, that's, that's her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I, I don't care about any, obviously you want good press and stuff. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, I weighed 50 pounds less. I'm I'm good on that. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: I you know I think I knew you first as a writer from Tumblr.
2: Oh yeah, really? I think so. You got you got some deep cuts.
0: Yeah, well, I mean it was, a, it was a good way to express yourself for a little
2: while. Yeah, I wrote for a newspaper first, and then I was always writing other things. So, you know, that's how I knew you of you first as well. Yeah. And then we kind of, like, reconnected in comedy. Right. Um, but, yeah, I was always a writer first. And so it's, for me, it's so satisfying to, like, to do this. And like right. you were saying earlier, have a book out. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's cool.
0: Yeah, I mean I knew I I think I was aware that you were a comedian but you were not in the in the city that I lived in and and uh, and then I, I I read I read your Tumblr and I thought like, Oh, this is a funny guy with a soul.
2: Oh, thanks man. Um, what, I got to get back to that Tumblr. I've really been neglecting it for a while. Man.
0: I tried to go back recently, <laughs> yeah. I just can't do it. It's a nicer place. I bet it is. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Good we should feeling. all
2: go back to that in like my space. I wonder who's my <laughs> yeah. who's my top 8.
0: Yeah. Let's get into Friendster. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, with the vitriol of like Twitter and everything, it's just like let's yeah. all go back and oh, we'll god. be exchanging mixtapes and writing zines in 10 years yeah. and it'll be a much better place. <laughs> and
0: retumbling each other's thoughts and whatnot. <laughs> oh god. I would love it. What was your, um, like, what's what's your writing process? Are you somebody who just glues yourself to a seat and gets it done?
2: You know, I'm so pretentious, and I've always admired writers forever, so it's like, and then we weren't working on the TV show when I got to the hard writing of this, so I had months to do whatever I wanted, so I work best in the mornings. So it was just great. I'd wake up with my wife. We'd walk the dogs, Mm -hmm. make a pot of coffee, and just sit down and write for four hours. And then I would just, you know, leave it alone. I wouldn't go back to it that day. Mm -hmm. And I've never been one of those dudes that's like, if it's not coming, whatever, i got to get a thousand words today. I'm not that way at all. Yeah. Are you?
0: Uh, No. Yeah. Not at all.
2: I feel like that's just bad writing. It's uninspired writing.
0: It is. It is. You know, sometimes, I do find that sometimes you have to swim out to the boat. Yeah. rather than wait for the boat to come and get you. Um, there are going to be times when you feel like you don't have anything to say. And if you do, you know, if you sit down long enough and you write something that you know no one's ever going to see, you might arrive at something. That's
2: very good. true. My sixth grade, like, poetry teacher, whenever she'd be like, you write best with a pencil in hand. <laughs> like, that, yeah. was her, yeah. that was her mantra. So yeah. it's, it's kind of that.
0: Yeah. yeah. What were your distractions, or did you have any?
2: In writing this or in sixth grade? Because they were everywhere. Yeah,
0: both, really. <laughs>
2: they're
0: probably still roughly the same.
2: Uh, didn't have good usage of, of the word like. I said the word like too much in sixth grade. Uh-huh. Miss Kennedy hated that. Sure. Um, the distractions for this were, you know, there was it was getting it right. And with each family member, they all have varying levels of comfort with me. Do They're all supportive. No one's like, fuck you for doing this. But they're all, you know, a little worried about it all. And so in the writing process, my mom would, you know, was less forthcoming, but as the book went on, she would, like, give me more. And I'd be like, look, it's, I think once she realized like it's going out into the world, she's like, well, I better make sure you're not doing a hatchet job. Uh And then, you know, my dad really uh, poured out a lot for me. And he and I just talk a ton about, Lydia still. I think he and I, it's weird because I'm way more like my mom in most ways, sort of like Southern woman, very dry, keep your cards close to your chest. I'm, I'm like that, I guess, except when it comes to grief where I'm like, I want to tell everybody. Uh-huh. Uh, and my dad is kind of like that too. So yeah, it's weird how uh, you're more like one parent than the other. But in the writing process, you know, my mom also did a really cool thing where like when we graduated, each of us, she handed us a bound book and it was like school years, Adam, Kate, and Holland, nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety eight, and there was drawings and poems and just a treasure trove. And so I took Lydia's, and I was like, "Thank you." Like talk about source material, right? And you know, going through old emails and texts and yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. we're a
0: well-documented generation. Definitely, you know, definitely. Because She's
2: less than I thought. She passed away in two thousand twelve, and that's just how cool she was. She wasn't putting it all out there online. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, we are, we are, well, there are places to go.
0: Yeah. There, you know, I was, as you were saying that, I was, I was thinking there's an element of grief where you do want everyone to know. Not always, but you do like, you just want people to know. About the person, or about or whatever, yeah, um, or just about your experience. I mean, do you?
2: That's very weird, and I think it's true for not just like you know quasi public figures who are like, I you know, I live I'd, on stage and I talk about what I'm going through. So, but I think everyone, I think the the hurt is so total that when the guy at the coffee shop's like, "What would you like today?" You're like, "Can't you see I'm hurting?" You just yeah. want him to know.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, and so I think there is a very human instinct to be like, y- "You need to know this about me." um and i've and and truthfully putting this out there has been really um therapeutic in that way right like i've never talked about on stage much but now i'm like i I can see i can see jokes here and there and like it's sort of just made it's 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 normalized it and you know for a long time especially with that book release last week it's like no one comes up to me and talks about lydia but it was so nice to see last week they're like oh, so many people are bursting to talk about Lydia. And so that I just really like that it's like, it's normal. I got a, I got a dead sister. It's real sad. I'm sad about it. Yeah. Um, and you are too. Right. And if you're not, you probably have someone else that you know that you're sad about. And I don't know. It's just been very normalizing, the whole thing. And, and I appreciate that. Right. Yeah.
0: You touched on it a little bit, but you you will have people coming to you for guidance in some way. Yeah. Or just to tell you because yeah. you got to tell somebody sometimes
2: it's weird I think uh, I, you know indeliberately I, I know I was getting into but I've definitely become a you know a face of of this and mental illness and grief for a little bit um, so I'm prepared for it but yeah it's a, it's a weird one Yeah, it's a weird one because um, like I said I, I'm the per- you know I'm a perfect split to my mom and my dad like I want everyone to know about my grief and then I want everyone to leave me alone Mm-hmm. And it's ditto on stage. I want a headline for the hour, tell you everything, and then I really don't want to make small talk after the show. Uh-huh. It just doesn't make sense, but that's that's who I am. Yeah. It yeah. actually makes perfect sense.
0: <laughs> uh, let's talk for a minute about I mean, EMDR. Mm. I wanted to make sure I got the, the you got letters it. right. Did I, okay? You totally got it right. What, what is it? Talk us through it.
2: Um, it's eye movement desensitiz- desensitization, which uh-huh. is very hard to say. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a form of therapy. If any of you read the book, you or, or maybe some of you know it anyway, it's uh, It's like it's treatment for PTSD, basically. And it simulates REM, like rapid eye movement. And for me, and I, I'm learning there's various types of this. Emily Gordon is actually getting like trained in EMDR. Okay, She'd be good at it. I bet she would. Um, But you put these, like, electronic pulsers in your hand, and you close your eyes, and they kind of tick-tock back and forth. And then, with a trained therapist, you go through the awful memory uh, that keeps coming up, be it war or or anything. And, you know, spoiler alert, I I found Lydia, and that became a very... uh, awful memory that was coming up in flashbacks and nightmares and just sucked. Um, and so that was getting, it got to a point where I was like, I gotta do something. And I'd been to several therapists that were not working for me. So somebody, <laughs> my, uh, my doctor, just my general physician, he's like, how, are, how open are you to like alternative stuff? And I was like, dude, very open at this point. What do you, what do you have? Like, is it a crystal? I'll worship it. Uh, <laughs> And, and then I went and did this, and it was so amazing immediately. Really? And it was really, just the, it really fucks with your memory. When, when you have a memory of a person that is so bad and dominant, it just crushes all the other memories, and they go completely away, and it feels like you've been robbed of those, like, memories. So she likened, my therapist likened it, to an errant file in a filing cabinet. And it's like, this is a loose file that needs to be filed away. And so like EMDR is going to help you file this away. Cause I was oddly very possessive of that memory. I was like, I don't want to like not have this. Cause I was like, it felt, it was, I was very close to her in that moment. Um, but I was like, I don't want to lose this. And she's like, you're not gonna lose it. You can pull it back out when you need it, but we file it away. And so like that worked and um, yeah, it's it's like, I really recommend it. Also, a lot of the other shrinks I was going to were great, but they were very pitying, and it was, like, everyone I went into was just, like, falling over themselves to, to show how, like, oh my god, and, like, dramatic size, and I just didn't want it, I resented it, and so I went into this woman who's a badass, and literally, I remember, like, a soldier coming out of her office when I went in for the first time, and you could tell this dude had, was haunted, and you know I got to know her better, and you know, she deals with people who've had all sorts of abuse. So there was, she wasn't dismissive of what I'd gone through, but there was this just attitude by her that was tough as nails, which is like, yeah, you've been through some shit, not the worst I've seen, let's get to work. And I just, I just so needed that, it was yeah. great. Um, so yeah, that's, that was my experience with the MDR. Okay, And I did it about, I don't even know, eight, nine, 10 times, and then at some point you're just kinda like, I'm done. I think I'm processed. I think it's so it's not coming up. And, you know, it's so um, triggering that you have to have like a happy place to retreat to. But it's pretty overpowering. The first time I did it, she was like, You shouldn't drive home. And I just walked around the neighborhood for an hour and it felt like I was having a mushroom trip. It was like really bright colors and the cars were so loud. I was just, I was really dialed in in my brain and all. Everything was coming in real clear Wow yeah it was in, it's intense stuff I I've known other people that have done it now and it seems to be pretty effective for people in a lot of different areas mm-hmm. yeah
0: and I would imagine that your family and you know this is their story to tell have done their own therapeutic journeys yeah um,
2: we t- we would that was like the first initial bonding experience After we're also my parents are you know civil rights attorney and former investigative journalist they're, they're intellectuals and they're badasses and we all are think we're hot shit. Yeah. So, and Anna's my sister is the same way. Civil rights too. So. All of us just, like, sitting together and just ripping our various bad shrinks apart was, like, the first time I'd laughed. I was like, oh, here's my family again. Like, Uh you wouldn't believe what this asshole said. And it was just kind of great to professionally condemn these people as a group.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But did you feel a a responsibility, or were you thinking about in what way you would affect the rest of your family by what you were writing and by putting it out?
2: If yeah you know. absolutely. And I still think about that all the time. Um, the mm-hmm. one the one thing we've been very good about and I'm proud of us is allowing each member to mourn how they need to mourn because mm-hmm. it's y- y- my mom was way down for a long time and's only recently kind of coming back. Um, Anna doesn't like to talk about it as much. Okay. My dad wants to talk to everybody about it. okay. Uh, you, you have to l- we've learned to be like, there's no right or wrong here. And if, you know, Adam's got to kind of write about it or talk about it, you know, obviously that's that's their story too I'm talking about, uh-huh. but they, they respect it. Right. And, you know, my mom's really nice. She'll call me and, you know, I got a piece in the New York Times and she was like, it's weird. It's just like she won't say anything about it for months and then she'll come back and she's like, I just thought you really crushed that article in the New York Times. And I was like, oh, great. Like, uh-huh. And I remember when when I sold the book, she's like, I'd love to go to New York with you to, like... For that trip to sign the papers and do all that, and I was just like every every time I think she's completely bowed out from like because it's too hard for her to deal with, I realize she's been monitoring it from afar for weeks and just yeah. like gives me a nice compliment. So it's nice, yeah, yeah. And it's, then my dad's is. got Google Alerts, so that's like uh-huh. like <laughs> ten times a day. Oh, the Boulder God. Weekly put the piece out. I think it's very strong. I'm like, okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> <so> great, great. <laughs> that's great, Johnny.
0: And it is it is literally a productive way to process this stuff. It it. Results in an actual product, yeah, that goes out into the world.
2: Yeah, it's it is literally a productive way yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I'm I'm proud of it. You know, and I think I think uh, she would like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a fitting tribute to her. So, I think that's about all I could do. You know, right? Yeah.
0: So now you have written about this experience, but also about your entire life leading up to really to the publication of the book and your relationship with comedy, your first show getting on the air, all of that. And now that is, now that's out there. Yeah. It so, feels like a
2: real turning point, right?
0: Yeah. So what do you do now?
2: I, I mean, not to just be cheesy, uh, having a kid in November uh-huh. and like, I'm excited to not be career driven. Like, I am it's like, I mean, I feel like the world reminds me of what's important. Like when Lydia died we sold those who can't. Two weeks later, you know what I mean. And I could give a shit. Right. Happy for the opportunity, but could give a shit. And I and and right before then, right before she died, I was going to move to LA and really go for it. I'd just been to Montreal, and you know, it's like my whole brain was career, career, and showbiz. And like then, it's like this is important. Everything you think is is important is not important. This is what it's important. Yeah. So I, but that's a a life lesson that. I continue to carry, but I, I don't know. I've, I'm excited for a little kid to come be like, oh, you think you're the shit? You're nothing. Uh-huh. I'm a you're about me from here on out. Uh-huh. I I could I can I could use that. Yeah. I, I could use that. That's great. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. That's
0: great. You had something else you wanted to read? Yeah, I was going to read
2: one more chapter. Okay, great. Um, cool. I'll do I'm going to sit here and watch you this. Time. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Wow. The, just when it couldn't get brighter in here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me find it. Again, this is like, I like reading stuff about her that makes me happy and not the, the real sad stuff in the book, which there's plenty of. So uh, this chapter starts, oh, wait, I have a, I have a thing I want to do. Oh, you can all hear me. Um, this chapter starts really happy, and then it gets really sad, and I found that cookies make... The sad part Oh, is, right on. Hey. Sad. So I would like you to pass those out. These are, as I discussed in the chapter, uh, Lydia crushed these things. She, mint work. were a So please pass them around. If you going a dry, have a mint Milano. <laughs> I don't know what nutritional lessons lie therein, but not my agenda. I'm about mental health. Mm-hmm. Hey Aldrin, could you keep it down? (laughs) Trying to read a thing here. Milo, shh. No, rip it open. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so this uh, this chapter is called "The Tattooed Lady." Um, My dad and I were playing catch in front of in the front yard of my childhood house. Two postcard Americans, father and son. It was a bright Sunday. Neighbors walked by and made quaint remarks. Is spring here already? You guys going out for the Rockies this year? People always like seeing us out there. There's something timeless about it. As they walked by, I wondered how many of them knew our story. I wondered if any of them saw Lydia and Anna and me out there when we were kids setting up lemonade stands and making snowmen. Did they see us trailing after our mom like baby ducks all those years, helping her unload groceries from the car? Did they know what happened to the little girl? Did any of them want to say anything, offer their condolences? Were the ones who just kept their heads down searching for the words? You know what I've realized lately? My dad asked me, both of our fastballs picking up velocity as our arms loosened up. What's that? I asked. That I'm just so over the bullshit of all of it, he said. I asked him what he meant. The bullshit, the dark stuff, the bad stuff, remembering the death itself and the trips to the hospital and the feelings of pain and guilt and all of that. I'm so sick of thinking about it. I could not be more done with that. I could relate. I had been writing this book thinking about her too much, thinking about too much of the bad stuff. I just miss her, he said. It's been six years since Lydia's death and we're all trying so hard to grieve and to mourn and to process everything we've been through. Some days are successes, others painful failures. It's hard to even keep track. I just miss her. I do too. I miss everything about her. Three pushes, my dad would often say when he was teasing Lydia, best at being born. That's all it took, by my dad's account anyway. Three pushes from my mom and out she came, wide-eyed, excitable, ready for the world. Like she couldn't wait to join her family and get started. I think she lived her life that way, with that urgency. The way she spoke, so fast, so intense. If you didn't get the first word in with Lydia, forget about it. That was your only shot. If you did, Lydia was gracious, happy to listen, happy to hear about everything you wanted to bring to the table and offer informed opinions and advice. But if Lydia took the reins of a conversation, you were off full clip down whatever rabbit hole she was currently occupying. But it was endearing. She was such a gifted thinker, so nimble and eloquent. Before you knew it, you couldn't help but agree that yes, Firefly is the most important television show of the early 2000s. And anyone who doesn't see that is not only fooling themselves, but completely wasting your time. She was an obsessive in the best sense of the word. I never saw my grandfather, the art dealer, in action, but his handiwork was the backdrop of my childhood. And it's clear that the man was gifted, that he had far-ranging eclectic tastes and truly appreciated the artists with whom whom he formed relationships. I imagine that he must have gotten lost in the art, consumed by it. It's not hard to see that in Lydia and the way she went about truly appreciating things. That's why in spite of her crippling inability to harness her natural gifts, her circle was always dominated by musicians and artists she got it. She understood. Often better than the artists themselves. She fixated. It was unwavering. I loved watching her fixate. There were no casual interests for her. If something attracted her attention, she would follow it until there was literally nowhere else to turn. And if she could tell you about it, then she was truly at her happiest. She loved sharing her obsessions. She loved turning you on to them. The Tick, the Misfits, the Cohen brothers. But even if her tastes weren't cool, she pursued them wholesale. It did not matter the popular perception. If she liked it, that was all that mattered. She was unapologetic. I've never met someone so detached from cultural peer pressure. Hipsters withered at her feet. She was cynical, but never ironic. Her friend told me once that they were riding an escalator down to a parking garage after a movie. Lydia started doing high kicks and singing magical Mr. Mistopheles from Cats. She was in her 20s. Some guy watching her was so charmed by the whole thing, he asked her out. Lydia and her friend gushed about it the whole way home. She was unapologetically herself. I loved watching Lydia interact with animals. She was a do-little. She whispered to them, she cooed, and they all responded. Lucy, her hedgehog, Pipkin, her rabbit, Penelope, her gray-lagged goose that she hatched in freshman biology as an experiment on imprinting. All the other geese were taken to some farm after the experiment, imprinting be damned. Not Penelope. She stayed with us, lived in our backyard, a real neighborhood attraction. Lydia's cat was her greatest joy, Sugar, an athletic stray crow assassin that we took in one Halloween night. Sugar was at her beck and call. Lydia would sing her name out and Sugar would come running. Even if she was outside, she'd shoot in through the cat door, track Lydia down, and nimbly jump into her arms. Lydia would boost Sugar up on her shoulders, front paws on one side, back paws on the other, her torso up against the back of Lydia's head so she wore her like a high collar. They would walk around like that, Lydia with her Sugar scarf. Sugar liked all of us. Sugar loved Lydia. When Sugar died, Lydia got a tattoo on her right collarbone of Sugar's paw print, a collarbone that has since been incinerated and sits with the rest of her in a jar in her closet, my little sister. I loved watching Lydia eat. It was fascinating. She would latch onto one food and eat it obsessively for weeks on end. Sautéed spinach with lemon and garlic for three weeks straight. Morningstar Farm chicken nuggets for the next two. She loved Carmine's on Penn, a family high-style, high-end Italian place in Denver. Lydia would order takeout minestrone and baked ziti in a basket of two of their complimentary rolls, haul the 10-pound-to-go order back to her house, and subsist on it for weeks. A stick-thin, 100-pound glutton feasting in front of Buffy reruns like a mob boss. There was always a grocery store sheet cake in her fridge. Always. And of course, all this was supplemented with a steady regimen of goldfish crackers and mint Milanos, which she consumed with appalling frequency. Pepperidge Farm ought to build a statue of Lydia. Somewhere out in the fields of Geneva's and pirouettes. So should Coca-Cola, next to the statue of Jordan dunking. She drank three Cokes a day, easily. Not Diet Coke, straight up Coca-Cola classic. Old faithful, the fucking good stuff. And yet her teeth didn't rot out of her head and she didn't have diabetes. It powered her, coursed through her body like oil in a truck. She could have been the poster child for Coke. You would have loved watching the satisfaction with which she could drink it. You'd have loved to hear how powerfully she could belch afterwards. My God, it was incredible. I loved having Lydia love me. There was no one more loyal. Her love was total and irrefutable. She held nothing back. Your happiness was hers. So was your suffering, which she could not stand, which she would do anything to remedy. When we were kids, we'd play Oregon Trail on our Apple IIGS, but we could never pack our family into a covered wagon and head out west to meet our fate. We could never punch in John and Linda and Anna and Adam and Lydia's players at the beginning of the game and then head off down the trail because sickness and suffering awaited us. And Lydia couldn't stand that, even fictionally. It was far easier on her to invent characters. She could handle Marcus dying of dysentery outside of Fort Kearney. Adam, not so much. That's how much she loved us. That's how I know that she had to do what she did. She loved us so goddamn much, and she knew how much we loved her and how devastating it would be to us if she took herself out of the equation, yet she did it anyway. The thought of us hurting and suffering hurt her so badly, and yet she still killed herself. She caused us hurt and suffering. That's how I know there was no other choice for her. She knew she would destroy us, but she had to do it anyway. Her pain was that great. And if that's the choice she had to make to end the misery, then I have to choose to love her for that choice. She loved me unconditionally, and I must do the same. We all must do the same. Lydia was so much more than the broken, scared girl she was so often toward the end. She wasn't always confused and sad and haunted. For most of her life, she glowed. She was this awesome original, this strange, funny, powerful force. There was no changing Lydia. It became a point of pride. There was no telling her how it was going to be for her, what she should or could be doing. And there was power in that. We all begrudgingly respected Lydia as immutable, whether we agreed with her or not. Right or wrong, we were impressed with her will, with the sheer force of her being, and we loved her for it. We love her for it, still.
0: Oh, Beautiful.
2: Thanks. And that
0: really is, the, for me, the most remarkable thing about the book, is that it's not, um, I mean, it is a memoir, and it is a story of a tragedy, um, it, but it is, the thing that really shines through is her. That's Like you really, I feel like I knew her, and I did.
2: I love that, I love that, and that was a, a real goal. Um, yeah, I wanted her to come to life a little bit, because mm-hmm. you know, every, everyone who knew her was she uh, is individual. Individual is like the highest compliment I can get, and right. she really was truly that. So I'm glad she lives on here a little bit. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let's open it up to the uh, to the audience. Sure, let's, let's. folks. Does anyone, anyone have any questions? Yes. Sorry. Yeah.
2: I think honestly that bit I just read—that um, was a conclusion I sort of reached in writing. They're like, because you know, man, I was angry and I was uh, guilty and all the the you know feelings one has after a suicide, um, and I was holding on to a lot of that. But like, getting to that point of understanding, sort of how far off she was and it's all about that empathy part. We're realizing that like, she knew she'd hurt us and yet she still chose to do it and that was how far gone she was that that was the only out she could see. Like, it's so quick, it's so amazing how, how quickly um, anger vanishes and guilt vanishes and you're just sad, it's just sad. Um, but that's, and that's how it's always gonna be. But it's, I don't know, there was a relief in that. It was like, oh, I think I'm done. I don't think I need to have any more hot takes on this. I think that's the one. That I'm gonna stick with for probably forever. Um, so, and I, I truly found it in, like in the writing, like Eureka! I like had the moment, and I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. But it, uh, I didn't expect to get to that part, and so that was like that, that probably just the most profound lesson I took in writing the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice, but also awful. Yeah. You're terrible to me right now. <laughs> I'm having a panic attack or whatever. Right. Um that like those things maybe came up where you were like, oh I Like did I keep anything that was too sensitive for myself? Yeah. Um you know. I remember the editor pushing me to be like you know, like, well, do you have our medical records and stuff? Like maybe there's something in there. And I don't think they were saying, like, give us a CSI detail, but I was just like, No, nah. Like, no, I don't and I'm not getting them and I don't need to go digging in hospitals. I'm not this is not a I'm not a journalist on this one, I'm a memoirist on this one. Um but truthfully I, I wrote I'm people are very responding to this and a lot of people are saying that it's helping them and I love that but it couldn't be further from why I wrote the book. I just was like helping myself and I think because of that I didn't really hold back. I just kind of was like, it's just, I need to get this out of me and it poured out of me. So I mean, maybe in re-editing I maybe changed a thing or two but it's pretty pretty real and I, I, I think people can be awful like you're saying but earlier when I was complaining about people reaching out, no one's been, you know, just callously presenting details of my life back to me. It's more just oversharing on their part, that I'm just like, okay, you, this could have been a paragraph and not, you know, 50 paragraphs. Um, so I hope that people maintain, you know, some decency and sort of like parroting this back to me. But uh, I didn't really hold back. I didn't hold back. I don't know. I just, I needed it, and I wrote it, and it came out that way. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't hold back much. Yeah yeah of course yeah <laughs> uh I see hawks all the time, dude no, well, as Aldrin's alluding to yeah to those who towards the, the end of the book there's a, i kind of there's a weird spiritual turn uh where I just started having these very strange run in with with red tail hawks, and so did my mom, and we were kind of sharing those independently from one another and we realized like, oh, something's going on here. And I mean, I won't, you can read further, but it really resonated and it was eerie on several occasions to the point where you're like, I think Lydia's sort of like reaching out to us. Um, and no, I don't, I don't see, I see Hawks all the time, but I don't, I haven't had any feelings like that's, that's the one, but I still put a lot of meaning on it. Like when I got married, at this church, there's these two spires. And I knew, I've seen it I drive by the church, I grew up near the church. I've seen hawks perching on that church my whole life. But when I got married, like two hawks sat on there and I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll assign meaning to that. I'll take that one today. Um, so sometimes I do. But it wasn't as heavy as it was those first couple of weird interactions. Um, yeah, but I always see a hawk and just feel, and reminded of her, yeah.
0: Your family seems pretty pragmatic. do they Did this experience make them more open to signs and symbols and whatnot?
2: I mean, i think I think they're pragmatic, but I think they're spiritual in their own ways. yeah. so I mean, but my dad lived on a <laughs> the Zuni Indian Reservation for a year. you know uh, he's he's a searcher. and uh, my, I think my mom actually is very much, too. I think she, she kind of rejected her religious upbringing and found her own spirituality. Um, I think there's a lot of nature and animals in in my family, and always has been so mm-hmm. i don't really only after this you know are you asking your parents well, what meaning do you assign to that? Uh-huh. but I think there's always been a, a a appreciation of that as as representative of something more mm-hmm. for sure okay. yeah
0: anybody all right. Well, are you going to sign some books?
2: I think I'm going to sign some books. Um, Thank you guys for coming, and thank you to Dave Holmes for for sitting here with me, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, sign some books. books
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.